Well, hi, Pastor Michael here. I want to give you a note here. Before we listen to the study of Daniel 7, and that was recorded on Palm Sunday, March 28, 2021, here's why. The timing of chapter 7 gets a little confusing, and it is confusing. In fact, the complexity of confirming the exact date of the beginning of chapter 7 has spawned many pages of scholarly research for decades. So, if you'll allow me permission to explain as simply but as quickly as I can, I'll give you uh, the most recent scholarship regarding the date of the events we'll read about here in Daniel 7. Now, first of all, Daniel 7 begins this way. We have to notice this very carefully. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, note that earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. Now, when did King Belshazzar reign? When did he start his reign as king? Well, remember, Belshazzar's father was named King Nabodinus, and he was actually the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. King Nabodinus began his reign in 556 B.C. after he assassinated the previous king. Now, King Nabodinus spent about 17 years as the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. But for most of that time, he lived in Arabia for about 10 of those 17 years. Now, because King Nabodinus knew he was going to make his headquarters in Arabia, he made his son Belshazzar co-king or co-regent so that Belshazzar would keep things in hand in the capital city of Babylon while his dad Nabodinus was living in Arabia. Now, King Nabodinus took over the empire again, remember, in 556 B.C. He named his son Belshazzar as co-ruler around 550 B.C. when Nabodinus moved his headquarters to Arabia. So when chapter 7 opens up by saying, Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, we can place the date of the beginning of chapter 7 sometime during the first year of Belshazzar's co-rule of Babylon, which began in 550, that's 550 B.C. Now, here's the important stuff to catch. Here we go. Chapter 7 does not chronologically follow chapter 6. Nope. Chapter 6 occurs after the death of King Belshazzar in 539 B.C., and as chapter 6 opens, King Darius is now the ruler. So chapter 7 actually occurs sometime between the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So chronologically, the timeline would be Daniel chapter 4, then Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 4, as you recall, recounts the history of King Nebuchadnezzar. After chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dies around 562 B.C. 
How do we know that, Mike? Well, we know it from other writings and other scriptures outside of the book of Daniel. All right, then before chapter 5 begins, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Merudach, takes the throne for two years, from 562 to 560 B.C. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter marries a former advisor to her father. His name is Nereglissar. So Nereglissar murders Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Merodach, in August of 560 A.D., and Nereglissar rules for four years, from 560 to 556 B.C. Now, Nereglissar has a son named Labashi Marduk, and Labashi Marduk becomes king after Nereglissar dies, apparently from a natural death, in 556 B.C. So, in May of 556 B.C., Labashi Marduk becomes king, but he only rules for two months. Why only two months? Well, because a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar assassinates Labashi Marduk in June of 556 B.C. So he's only alive to rule from about May to June. Now the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar who murdered Labashi Marduk, his name is Nabodinus. Nabodinus is the father of Belshazzar. So Nabodinus becomes king in 556 B.C., and about six years later, in 550 B.C., he makes his son Belshazzar the co-ruler of the Babylonian Empire, with Belshazzar remaining to rule in Babylon itself, while dad Nabodinus shifts his base of operations to Arabia. So that brings us again to 550-550 B.C., the first year of the rule of King Belshazzar, co-ruling with his dad Nabodinus over the Babylonian Empire. And 550 B.C. is where Daniel chapter 7 begins, quote, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon. All right, so to review, allowing for the difficulty in certifying the exact dates, generally we can say Daniel chapter 7 begins about 12 to 14 years after chapter 4, but before chapter 5. All right, buckle your seatbelts, and let's begin Daniel chapter 7. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea and the strong winds blowing from every direction. Then the four beasts came up out of the water each different from the other. Remember the beasts that we saw in Revelation, especially Revelation 13. I also want to note that in chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel, as you go back and you review, Daniel wrote in the third person. 
Remember, he refers to himself as Daniel. Uh, he doesn't say I or, or me. He says, Daniel does this, Daniel does that. So Daniel, now in chapter 7 uh, through 12, is going to refer to himself in the first person for the first time. So he's going to refer to himself as I, not in the third person as Daniel. And secondly, many visions within the Bible are given when people are awake. Um, in this case, Daniel is asleep. He is asleep during this uh, entire, uh, entire vision. So for clarity, I'm going to quote the English Standard Version for verses 2 and 3, because the English Standard Version and the more traditional translations provide a better description of the uh, of the winds here that are mentioned than the New Living Translation. So verse 2, Daniel declared, I, here he goes into the first person, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out up of the sea different from each other. Now, the four winds are significant. A lot of scholars, including those from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, say that the winds here represent four spirits or four angels who stirred up the great sea. And uh, who wants to take a guess as to which sea we're talking about, the great sea? Well, it's the Mediterranean uh, Sea. Mediterranean, right? Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, exactly. So these four great beasts rise up out of the sea, each beast different from each other. And the four beasts represent four kingdoms. Look at verse four. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Now, the first beast, in terms of the imagery here, probably can refer to Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps it's referring to that seven-year period where he went insane, living like a wild animal. Uh, that before God brought him back to his senses and turned his life around. <clears throat> er, uh, originally, this beast had the majesty of a lion. Remember, the Babylonian Empire was incredible. And the swiftness of an eagle with eagle's wings. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar fairly quickly built up the Babylonian Empire up to the point where he went insane. The wings were pulled off. Now, the NIV suggests a more violent wrenching of those uh, eagle's wings from the lion. The NIV suggests they were torn off. The NASB and ESV say they were pulled off. So again, <clears throat> it may refer to King Nebuchadnezzar's years of insanity and then living like an animal. And it also probably describes the eventual defeat of the Babylonian Empire, the defeat at the hands, if you remember, of King Cyrus in 539 B.C., uh, who defeated and killed uh, King Belshazzar in the process. Remember um, the tactic to make a canal uh, out of the Euphrates and divert it from the north part of Babylon 
And so instead of the river running <coughs> uh, under Babylon, bisecting it, so to speak, the river was diverted. Remember that the land became, became dry and the soldiers were able to go underneath the wall, come up inside Babylon, and they took the city without a fight. And Belshazzar or Belshazzar was, was killed in the process. All right, so that's the first beast, probably both representing Nebuchadnezzar and also the defeat, the eventual defeat of the Babylonian empire that he, um, that he built. Now there's a second beast, verse five. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So it had been chomping on somebody. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. So this bear-like beast represents the Medo-Persian Empire that did defeat King Belshazzar and ended the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC. So this beast is... Uh, referred to as King Cyrus coming in and, and taking over. And now we have um, the, the next empire following the Babylonian empire, which is the Medo-Persian empire represented by King Cyrus. Now notice the phrase here. And I heard a voice, that's from God, saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. And that indicates God's sovereignty here, the judgment that God was giving uh, to those who opposed him and uh, to his own children who were disobedient as well. So it's a reminder that God still operates in the midst of what we think are, <coughs> excuse me, horrific events. God is still working in the process, sometimes reacting and sometimes purposefully in terms of building the uh, the kingdom. All right, now there's a third very strange beast that comes up from the Mediterranean Sea, verse 6. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Now, the beast characterized by a leopard having four birds' wings and four heads suggests a couple of characteristics. It suggests swiftness uh, by the leopard being very swift by the four birds' wings. And then the four heads could also uh, remind us of the intelligence of this beast. had four heads to, uh, to uh, think better. This beast represents the Greek Empire, which defeated the Medo-Persian Empire over a period of about four years, ending in 330 BC. It was a fairly swift conquering. In terms of conquering this vast empire, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Greeks conquered the Medo-Persian Empire fairly, fairly swiftly. So the swiftness of this beast uh, really reflects the swiftness with which the Greeks took over and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And at the head of this was a name that you'll all recognize, Alexander the Great. 
or in Veggie Tales, I think it was Alexander the Great, if I remember. But anyway, historically, it was Alexander the Great. And uh, let me read you just a very short paragraph from history.com. I think it's a pretty good uh, description of Alexander. One of history's greatest military minds, who as king of Macedonia and Persia, established the largest empire the ancient world had ever seen. By turns charismatic and ruthless, brilliant and power-hungry, diplomatic and bloodthirsty, Alexander inspired such loyalty in his men, they'd follow him anywhere and, if necessary, die for him in the process. And though Alexander the Great died before realizing his dream of uniting a new realm, his influence on Greek and Asian culture was so profound that it inspired a new historical epic, the Hellenistic period. All right, so Alexander the Great didn't live long enough to see the fruits of his uh, labor, both brilliant and, and violent. But he uh, did build a, an empire, the, the likes of which the world had never, had never seen. And so uh, the four heads, as they progress, are also going to foreshadow the fall of the Greek empire, which was divided into four parts eventually. All right, now, this next beast reminds me a lot of the visions from our study in Revelation. Look at this, verse 7. This is the fourth beast, beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Remember the ten horns? We studied that. Yep. Verse 8, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it, and this little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. You have an idea who that is, right? foreshadowing of the antichrist here so let's go back to revelation 13 and connect the dots revelation 13 then i saw a beast rising up out of the sea it had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns and written on each head were the names that blasphemed god the beast looked like a leopard there it is again the same leopard as in daniel but it had feet of a bear and mouth of a lion. Hmm. And the dragon gave the beast its own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast. Who is as great as the beast? They exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemes against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. How long is 42 months? 
part of the tribulation period remember yeah yeah the three and a half three and a half years and, a half and he years. spoke <laughs> and he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against god slandering his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven and the beast was allowed to wage war against god's holy people and conquer them and he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation and all the people who were belong who belonged to this world worshipped the beast. They are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. So see the connection here uh, between what we're reading in Daniel seven and what's happening in Revelation thirteen one through eight. And the imagery here in Daniel seven and verses seven and eight suggests the progression of the empires. The Greek or Hellenistic Empire is crushed by the Roman Empire. And it was a terrifying, dreadful, and very strong empire with huge iron teeth. You think about the armies, the legions of the Roman Empire, and the way that it ruled uh, the world. However, the Roman Empire is going to fall as well, if you remember and great reason due, its own, due to its own deterioration in 476 A.D. <clears throat> I want to take a sidebar here and just very briefly look at a couple of reasons why Rome fell. And if you remember, remember the progression here. We had the Babylonian Empire. Then Cyrus comes in with the Medo-Persian Empire. Then Alexander the Great comes in with the Grecian Empire. And then you have the Roman Empire that defeats the Greek Empire. And then Rome falls. And it's due to a couple of things. It, it is due to a lot of the barbarian tribes from uh, the north, the Germanic tribes that started to infiltrate and migrate into Rome. Uh, but a lot of the fall of Rome had to do with Rome itself deteriorating from the inside out. Rome became its own worst enemy. couple of reasons. Uh, number one, all these assaults by barbarian, fierce Germanic tribes. It was nonstop, and eventually Rome couldn't withstand it. Two, <clears throat> Rome relied on slave labor, and it was experiencing economic decline. So the slaves were building the economy, but what happened was as Rome expanded, they could take more slaves from the areas that they were conquering and therefore make more infrastructure, make more money uh, for businesses with these slaves. But the problem was that the uh, expanse of the empire, the, the conquering of new territories basically stopped Rome couldn't expand anymore, and so then they didn't have any more slaves for the slave labor. So you had this combination of lack of expansion, economic decline, and lack of slave labor, and the whole infrastructure of the Roman economy uh, began, to, uh, began to fail. And Rome was pretty much towards the end divided into uh, east and west. And uh, the Western Empire was seated in the, uh, in the city of Milan. 
and the Eastern Empire in Byzantium, later known as Constantinople after uh, Constantine. And the East and West did not work together well. Uh, they almost became adversarial. And so Rome really began to um, divide itself. It, it, it began to create its own crumbling, so to speak. And then eventually they would be uh, uh, conquered. Uh, there was also an overexpansion of spending on the military. The military was doing nothing for Rome at this time, um, and we'll see why in a minute. But they were putting uh, lots of money in the military and not getting any return for their investment. No territory, new territories were being conquered. And then you had government corruption. Does that sound familiar? You had government corruption, a lack of trust in government, and a series of political assassinations. So that contributed to the fall of Rome. And then uh, three more quickies. These Germanic tribes began to migrate into Roman territories. And Rome decided to let them in, but they treated these migrants uh, horribly. They, they abused them. They would uh, tell them they could in, could come in, but they had to give their children as slaves and they'd get dog meat in return. I mean, it was just a, a horrible thing. So eventually, uh, these migrants, uh, these Germanic migrants, <clears throat> uh, started to revolt and started to war against the country that they had migrated to. And then you have the rise of Christianity. Now, why would that affect the Roman Empire in terms of its disintegration? Well, it's because the Roman Empire was built upon a polytheistic uh, culture. And so the emperor of Rome would always be considered pretty much a deity in and of himself. Well, here comes Christianity, especially around the 300s at the, uh, the time of Constantine and such. And Christianity brings this monotheistic religion. And so Rome is losing part of the hold on the people, this false religion about false gods and the emperor being a, almost a god himself. And so that begins to wear away at the foundation religiously of the Roman Empire. And then finally, you remember the term, the Roman legions. Uh, these were legions of, uh, of military might that went throughout the world and the Roman legions of, of soldiers were, were feared. <clears throat> they were so strong. <clears throat> they were the envy of, of history in terms of their power and their authority. But what happened was as new territories were not being conquered anymore, uh, the uh, native Romans lost interest. They didn't sign up to be in the legions. The legions started to crumble. And so Rome had to hire mercenaries. Well, who were they, who were they to hire as mercenaries? Who, who were the new blood coming into the Roman Empire? Well, they were these Germanic tribes. Now, these Germans, these Germanic barbaric tribes were really good at warfare. They were tough. They were good fighters. The problem is, ultimately, they got a little tired of Rome, and these mercenaries turned against the country that had hired to protect them. And so you had all of these, uh, about seven or eight different um, <clears throat> uh, influences that were 
uh, causing the foundation of Rome to crumble, and eventually Rome would would crumble in. It it, it would um, implode, I guess you could say. It it fell uh, against itself. All right, that's our history lesson on Rome. Let's get back to Daniel uh, seven here. Daniel's <clears throat> Daniel's dream. Now we have the succession. Remember of the empires, Babylonia, the Medo Persians the Greek or Hellenistic, and the Roman. Verse 7 of Daniel 7. And again, again, remember, Daniel now is switching to speaking in the first person. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was very different from any other beast, and it had ten horns. And I was, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. The three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. And this little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So this little horn is the, the uh, Antichrist as, as we would know him. Now the scene changes and we see God on his throne preparing to judge what's going on here. So here we go. Verse 9. <clears throat> as I watched the thrones, as I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One, meaning God, sat down on to judge, his clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. To quote Sammy Davis Jr., here come the judge, and uh, this is the final. This is God the Father on his throne. And remember, we saw that picture early on in in John's uh, visions in Revelation. Remember the uh, the uh, we would call it like laser lights and and uh, just this dazzling brilliance of light flowing from the throne of the Father, and that's similar to <clears throat> what Daniel is describing here. Now, if we equate this emerging horn with the arrogant boasting of the Antichrist, this beast will not, <clears throat> will not be defeated by another empire. This beast, the Antichrist, has to be defeated by God himself through Jesus Christ, right? So there will not be an empire that defeats the Antichrist. It's God himself, all right? Verse 11, I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little longer. And as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man. Now remember, Daniel doesn't know Jesus Christ. The Old Testament doesn't know Jesus Christ. They know the Messiah is coming, but they don't know the name Jesus Christ. And if you remember in our explorations of the Old Testament, oftentimes we equate the angel of the Lord being present there as the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, like 
uh, he with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, uh, he with Daniel in the lion's den, probably the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But in, in the Old Testament, that name is not used because they only know the, the prophesied Messiah who is to come. So in the second half of Daniel 7 here, Daniel is disturbed because he who God interprets dreams through can't interpret his own dream. And so he turns to someone near him, and it is an angel, and we guess, and this will be looking later on at, at chapter 8, this is probably the angel Gabriel that is, uh, that is by Daniel here. So he turns to this angel and asks for the interpretation. So this new horn, the indication of the Antichrist, appears. Now watch for time descriptions as we get into the interpretation that's involved here. Remember, time, when we see that word, equals one year. Times, plural, means two years. And of course, half a time means half a year. All right? So watch for that as, as we move through here. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's get into the interpretation here in verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne of God and asked him what it all meant. And this is probably Gabriel. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom, and they will rule forever and ever. Are you thinking about the connection to Revelation here? Yeah, it becomes clearer and clearer, doesn't it? Verse 19. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This horn seemed greater than the others, and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then he said to me, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It will be different from all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule the empire. Then another king will arise different from the other ten who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. So we have a year, two years, yeah. times, yeah. and half a time. So one, and a half. two, three, three and a half years of the tribulation period. So in this, to review very quickly, 
I hope I'm not going too fast. I'm trying to make this as connectable as possible. We have the Antichrist coming to power. He rules in the three and a half years of the last period of the tribulation where he does a 180. He's no longer this, this guy yes. negotiating peace treaties all over the world. And he rules for uh, a time, times, and half a time for a total of three and a half years. And they're speaking in the end of the uh, tribulation period here. And so it helps us understand in Daniel what's happening in Revelation 13. And Revelation 13 helps us understand what's happening in Daniel. So it's helpful to kind of keep the two uh, open at the same time. The ten horns represent the world authorities that were in place after the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD. So the fourth beast that tramples everyone else and becomes this world power is the Roman Empire. But then the Roman Empire falls, and there is no one empire to take, it place, is, take its place, is there? We are still in that period. Uh, there has been no real world power since the Roman Empire fell. And so the ten, um, uh, the, 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 the ten authorities are those uh, kingdoms, those rulers that represent all the kingdoms that came after the Roman Empire. Now remember that the uh, Antichrist early on will appear to make peace with Israel. Remember that? But he will violently reverse himself in the last half of the tribulation period. Remember, in the first three and a half years, he, <clears throat> he appears, he grows in, in uh, stature, he grows uh, in popularity. He's seen as this peacemaker throughout the world. People love him. Uh, they think that he is this wonderful, peaceful person that is bringing peace to the world and it's all part of his devious plan that's being plotted by the devil represented by the dragon. And so that's the first three and a half years. The second three and a half years, the Antichrist <clears throat> is shown to be who he really is. And with the help of the other beast, the false prophet, uh, the Antichrist takes over the known world and, uh, and obviously takes over the temple and asks to be worshipped and and there's all the violence that, that comes from that. Okay, so the holy people or the saints at this time that are mentioned here in Daniel, the holy people, they are God-fearing Jewish people. Uh, the church, Jan, Daniel would not have known about yet, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. So what Daniel is referring to is the holy people of God, the Jewish people, or the Gentiles who have converted to Judaism uh, during the Old Testament times. That's who they're talking about, are the either Jewish or Gentile converts to, uh, to Judaism. So the church age is not going to be familiar to Daniel. Uh, so the church age is not in play here in Daniel's mind, so it is, it is not identified in Daniel 7 here. Now, I want to let's see how many. Okay. Can you hang with me another uh, yes. five minutes? 
so we can conclude. I hate to drop it because we'll be losing continuity. Let me move through this as fast as I can without being confusing. To be fair, by the way, there's a school of thought among some premillennialists that the Ten Kings are still to appear in the future. As possible, I'm not a big fan of that. I think the Ten Kings just represent world authorities that come after the Roman Empire. It really doesn't matter one way or the other, but I just want to make you aware of that alternate uh, opinion. So the Antichrist, again, emerges in the last three and a half years of the tribulation uh, period. Who does he persecute? He persecutes God's holy people the Jewish people, or the Gentile converts to, uh, to Judaism. The holy people, or the saints, again, are not going to be known as the church or the church among them to Daniel yet. So part of what we know from Revelation is not in play yet in Daniel's mind. So he's thinking strictly of the Jewish people or the Gentile converts. All right, so let's round this out. Verse uh, 26. But then the court, that's God, will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed, talking about the Antichrist. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. That was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. So that's why we have this time shift of 14 years earlier uh, in Daniel 7, because Daniel did not show this to anybody. He didn't speak of it to anyone. The first time that he makes it known is in this book that that he writes. So before we leave chapter 7, let me again tie things up in terms of the progression of the empires or rulers or kings. And I also want to talk about, which is really important here at the end, the age of the Gentiles. All right, and I'm going to end with that in a second. All right, number one. We have, we've seen the Babylonian Empire, 609 B.C. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel's dream, uh, it is the first beast, the winged lion. So we, I'm going to give you Nebuchadnezzar's interpretation and then Daniel's dream interpretation. All right? So as we go through these four uh, empires, I'm going to give you the interpretation that Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then with that, the interpretation that Daniel was given by Gabriel of Daniel's dream. Okay? All right, so here they are. Babylonian Empire, 609 B.C. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was the head of gold. For Daniel, it was the first beast, the winged lion. The Medo-Persian Empire, 539 B.C., led by King Cyrus. For Nebuchadnezzar's dream, represented by the chest and arms of silver. In Daniel's dream, the Medo Empire, Medo Persian Empire, was the bear raised up on one side. And then the Grecian, 
the Greek or Hellenistic Empire in 330 BC. Maybe they accomplished that by the Grecian formula. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Sorry, too up too late. We'll strike that from the record. All right, so the Grecian or the Hellenistic Empire comes in 330 BC. For Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is it was represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. In Daniel's dream, the Grecian or Hellenistic Empire was uh, represented by the winged leopard. And then finally, the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, which uh, began to uh, take over and solidify in the first century BC, uh, about 100 years before Christ. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Roman Empire had legs of iron with feet with a mix of clay in them. In Daniel's vision, the Roman Empire is this mongrel fourth beast with iron legs and iron teeth. And then after that fourth beast, that little horn appears, who we know now to be the Antichrist. And he rules during the tribulation period. And who stops it? Not another empire. Who stops it is Jesus Christ as he arrives at the second coming. And he defeats the Antichrist. He establishes his millennial kingdom. And ultimately, uh, uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil himself are thrown into the lake of fire. And we have the eternal kingdom, then the new heaven and the new earth, ruled by Christ forever and ever. Now, chapter 7 ends the chapters that were written in Aramaic for the Gentiles, for the Babylonians, for the non-Jewish readers. Why? Well, remember that basically chapters 2 through 7 talk about the prophetic history of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, right? We're looking at the histories of, of the world empires, and so these are non-Jewish people, non-Jewish empires, Gentile empires. So Daniel writes uh, basically chapters 2 through uh, the end of 7 in Aramaic because he wants the Gentiles to read about their own prophetic history that extend to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 8, uh, Daniel is going to switch to uh, writing in Hebrew. Why Hebrew? Because he's going to address the Jewish people as they live through, and he addresses their prophetic history from that point on until the second coming of Christ. So uh, chapters uh, 8 through 12 are rehearsing and talking about the Jewish history to come, the Jewish prophetic history during the time of the Gentiles. So he writes it in Hebrew because he it, it's aimed at the Jewish people. Now, what about, I'm going to end with this, what about the times of the Gentiles? The times of the Gentiles began when Babylon conquered the last vestige of the 
children of God having their own kingdom. And that was the remaining, remember, the, the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been uh, defeated. So what remains is the southern kingdom of, uh, of, of, the, of, of the Jewish people, the southern kingdom of Judah. That falls under the hand of the Babylonian Empire. So Judah, the last vestige of the Jewish empire, so to speak, the Jewish kingdom, is defeated. By whom? By Gentiles, by non-Jews. So when we hear in the Bible, and, and uh, we'll, we'll read the times of the Gentiles, um, it means the time from 539 uh, uh, B.C., I'm sorry, uh, 586 uh, B.C., when the Gentiles uh, began their empire after conquering Judah. So in 586 B.C., we begin the times of the Gentiles because the Jewish kingdoms are no more. The Babylonians have taken the uh, people from Judah captive, and there is no more Jewish kingdom. So 586 B.C. with the Babylonians begins the times of the Gentiles, and that will extend until Jesus Christ's second coming onto earth. So the times of the Gentiles extend from 586 B.C., where the Babylonians do away with Judah and take Judah captive, clear until the arrival of Jesus Christ at the second coming when he lands on earth. Uh, Luke makes a, a quick reference to this in Luke 21, 32. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the times of the Gentiles. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. So we have uh, Luke giving us a hint uh, towards the ending of the times of the Gentiles. Uh, again, extending from 586 BC, the beginning of the Babylonian Empire, the destruction of the final uh, Jewish kingdom of Judah, until Jesus comes and for his second coming, where then uh, the God will fulfill his promises to the Jewish people with a kingdom, and he will also establish a kingdom uh, that the Gentiles are part of as well. Okay, so that's the best I can do to connect the dots as logically as I can, all right, uh, between Daniel 7 and what we know from, from uh, Revelation. Now, uh, again, we will not meet next week. I'm going to take some time off uh, in the afternoon and and even take some time off from the radio show on Monday. Uh, it'll be pre-recorded, so I'm I I just need that right now uh, for myself. So thank you for allowing me that time next week. We will not meet next week. We'll come back the Sunday after Easter with Chapter Eight with yet another dream that uh, that Daniel has. Whew. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, how's everybody doing you okay wow <laughs> all right 
Yep. Any uh, any questions? Any observations? And if you have to go, that's fine. But any any questions or observations before we go? Well, you're going to have to go back over this again, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I it, it takes more than one breath to get it all in. So uh, to really to go back over it again and all the information you've given us, Mike, uh, just tremendous. Uh, things that when you read it, uh, it it uh, it just glances over it. It, it doesn't yeah. uh, have any depth. That's why you go to the study Bibles, and and uh, it's it's very complicated and complex, uh, and yet it's actually simple, isn't it? You know, it is both, John, um, and that you know, God himself is in one way incredibly simple and the gospel message is simple and yet complex you know god we understand is a simple relationship and yet his omnipotence his omniscience his omnipresence uh his sovereignty the fact that he wasn't created that he always was he is and always will be these are things that fry my synapses yeah. smoke starts to come out of my ears you know when or i the get trinity. Deep into that or the, the trinity. trinity yeah Very, i mean we we how do know you die on the cross and yet god turns his exactly. head or, you know back on yeah. yeah so john that's a very perceptive statement it is that the christian walk at one level is very simple, but at another level is very complex. Very complex. Hi, okay. Sandra. Hi. Pictures of Well, we got a bad feedback there somewhere. Boy. All right. Any other? Uh, hi, Lee. <laughs> it's been going in and out we're on our way to the coast and i don't know uh i don't know why but i've lost you three or four times and then the video too but i've gotten the the basic message good yeah it um well and she could probably listen to it yeah uh, recording right. still in Sandra, uh, your your phone or tablet is, is feeding back there a little bit. Okay, I I pressed a different button. Let me see if I can unmute it or whatever. Okay, or mute it. Yeah, or or turn. Yeah, turn down the speaker a little bit. That should do it. Um. So, all right. Yeah, good, good, good comment, John. Any other? Uh, I know your some of your heads may be spinning a little bit. Mine is <laughs> even, oh, yeah. Uh, wow. And and uh, so anyway, this will be posted, uh, and I'll send out a text probably tomorrow morning. Uh, it will be posted mm -hmm. online, and if you want to go back and listen to it, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, and it's again, we'll meet. It's really, it's excuse me, Mike. It's really by faith, isn't it? I can see why by faith we're saved because all of this yep. is so heavy. Yes, yes. And for what we intellectually 
cannot get our heads around is covered by our faith, if I could yes. put it that way. And it doesn't mean that we should not pursue the intellectual part. We, we need to continue to study the word of God to the right. and, and to grow. But uh, yes, you're exactly right, Lee. Good, good point that when, when our heads start to spin and, and we need to wrap our heads with duct tape to keep it intact, why uh, it's our faith that, that keeps us in the game there. Yep, absolutely. Good point. You know, Any one thing comments? about this, one thing about this, <coughs> this chapter, and although all the chapters really, is there's a lot of history in it. Mm. So you've gone out and, you know, about the Roman Empire and stuff. Well, it's not only about what the dream was about. You also have gone back and told us all the history, which makes it more, I'll say, complex. Although I don't find it all that complex, but I don't try to understand everything you tell because <laughs> I know I can't. So, um, but I was thinking one thing about that. I can't imagine this lesson being in your head <laughs> because there was so much there. No wonder you need a rest. <laughs> That's a lot of yeah. information. Uh, it is a lot of information, and it's one of those things, and, and John, I think you just spoke to it, where, you know, before I prepare chapter eight, I'm going to have to come back and review chapter seven, yes. and go back and review chapter five and six, which preceded chapter seven, yeah. uh, ju mm -hmm. just to yeah. make sure that I've got all the connections in my yes. head. And it, it, <laughs> That's it a is. lot. That it, is a it's lot a lot you. of information. I mean, to think for us to grasp it, it's nothing. For all that you have to do to even present it is more than I would be able to do for sure. See if, <laughs> if I hold my head, <laughs> if I hold my head to the microphone, you can hear it spinning inside. Yes, <laughs> I can. <laughs> well, I can see how come, although I still go back to all the years that you always studied Daniel in uh, Sunday school, but you studied Daniel um, for several different key stories, different, um, and not, again, like you and I've talked about, honey, on a, on a timeline of other things happening in the world. That's right. where I missed it. Um, so you know that the Jewish people were taken captive by Babylon, but you didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world at that time. And that the Medes and Persians were obviously getting ready to, to do their thing. And, um, you know, the Chinese were doing their thing, but we never even think about the Chinese. Um, and just all of the things that were happening in the world. And, um, and then about Daniel writing it in two different languages. I never even, never, or, and to two different audiences that I never, ever knew. I never remember being taught that. Um, so there, there's so many things that I'm so glad we're learning now. I well, think I it think brings it to class, life. 
a Sunday school class. I'm, I've never been in a Sunday school class. Well, and if you're talking about, you know, I was in Sunday school till I was 15. I wouldn't have been able to understand anything you're talking about anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't have had, yeah. the, you know, so, and you had to have somebody to do all of this research. Mm. You know, mm. not every pastor in Modesto that does intensive Bible studies could present this much information because they'd have to research it, you know. So I uh, I think in Sunday school, they just give us the, when yeah, I the highlights, Sunday not school, mm -hmm. pardon? The highlights. Yeah. The bullet the highlights. points. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. I don't think we're ready to hear. I think when we're ready to hear all of this, we search out someplace to get it. Mm -hmm. Good point. I, you know, uh, God doesn't expect us to know all of Daniel when we are in Sunday school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't, for those of you who remember it, you can't fit Daniel onto a flannel graph. It just That's right. There's no way. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> that doesn't work. No. Oh, no. honey. Oh, I do remember photographs. Yes. Remember oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, you would, Anne, because we were all in Sunday school right. together. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank, thank you for all those who are gathered here, uh, and and Lord, thank you for allowing us the the privilege of delving into Daniel, oh. looking at the context. Uh, the contextual history that is also important and and help us assimilate it uh i'm going to need to go back over what i just talked yeah. about and so help us all assimilate it make it clear in our minds not just so that we can say hey i've got it but that we will understand the past so that we can even understand the future better and our role in the kingdom as as uh, you are rolling it out. So, again, thank you for each one on this call, and uh, just treasure them. And, uh, Lord, we look forward to Resurrection Sunday to celebrate your defeat of the enemy, your uh, defeat of death itself. And, Lord, we, uh, we look forward to celebrating that uh, next week. Not here on the two o'clock hour, but uh, in other venues. So again, uh, Lord, thank you so much for this time together. And uh, we ask these things in your name. Amen.